Welcome to Totally Biased Media, the show where three brothers who know nothing about video games tell you everything they know about video games. I'm Jordan, and a parasite shared is a parasite halved. I'm Jason, and I failed my charisma saving throw. And Jackson couldn't be here today because he accidentally rolled a 41 on the wild magic table. Baldur's Gate 3 has set the gaming world on fire. But how did this happen to a series that hasn't even had a new entry in nearly 20 years? This week, we're going to dig into what makes Baldur's Gate 3 so special, and why so many people connect with it, even if they have never been interested in any other CRPG before. And now, let's get into it. It's official, there have been too many games. Specifically, too many games this year, and I can't keep up anymore. Yeah, especially like around a month ago when... Baldur's Gate drop, Starfield drop, people were still playing Legend of Zelda. It feels like everything's still coming out at a pretty decent pace, even now. I mean, uh, I think yep. Assassin's Creed just dropped. We have Sonic, Mario, and Spider-Man <laughs> all coming out within a four-day window here in about two weeks. It's just, it's non-stop. Specifically, games like Baldur's Gate... You know, they're not only dropping in the middle of the busy season. Baldur's Gate is also, like... I, I don't know anyone that has finished this game in less than 100 hours. It's absurd. I think I took over 30 hours just to get out of Act 1. Because I was doing, like, everything that I could mm. find. I just didn't want to move forward without, you know, making sure I had done all the side quests. So, constantly traveling back and forth through all the same places. So I can find out, ooh, maybe if I talk to this NPC... There's going to be one more side quest, and I want to see how that plays out later on down the road. Yeah, I mean, I was so caught up in everything that was going on, and I wanted so badly to make sure I didn't miss anything that, like, 10 hours in, I just started over. <laughs> because I feel like there were decisions that I didn't like the outcomes from, and I wanted to just go back and see how it could be different. It's just, there is so much here. I mean, you could probably spend several hours... And not go more than like half a mile in any direction from just the starting point of the game. Like it's absolutely absurd how much is on display here. Within like the first hour, you could theoretically run into like three different dungeons that are all yeah. appropriately leveled at least a little bit. And they introduce a new companion or a new enemy or a new quest line. Like there's something going on in every nook and cranny of this map. And just the act one map is huge and spans like three or four different maps, like sub maps, I guess. I think what's even more confounding isn't even just that there are so many quests in such a big area. It's the fact that you encounter so many people and every single one of them has something to say and something to actually contribute. It's not like most RPGs where if you walk through a town with 100 people, you know, 95 of them just say the same generic stuff or they just make quips about the weather or their money or whatever. Like this game, every single person you encounter is a named character that actually has something to say about what is going on. And that alone is just absolutely wild. Yeah, I think it's pretty refreshing exploring around and not just seeing enemies that are named like Town Guard or, you know, Tiefling and then a number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it made it to where I always felt like I needed to talk to everyone. And most of the time, it was pretty rewarding to do so because you actually learn something about the world. Sometimes you get a new quest when you weren't expecting it. Or sometimes you find out that the, that character has some bigger connection to what's going on in some way you would have never imagined. Like, I, I don't know. I, I can't stop from gushing about this game for long enough to even, like, explain what this game is. <laughs> Well, that's probably a good place for us to start with just like yeah. kind of a high level overview of like what Baldur's Gate 3 is, how we got here. <laughs> yeah. So Baldur's Gate 3 is the third game in the series, of course, as you can tell by the name, but it is the first game in the series made by Larian Studios, which are the developers that are probably most famous for the Divinity Original Sin games, but also the Divinity series as a whole. And they've done some other RPG stuff from the, you know, the early 2000s and before that I, I think they probably don't get as much recognition for, but 
the Divinity Original Sin and specifically Divinity Original Sin 2 are two of the biggest in this whole genre. So it's very fitting that they would take on a project like this and that they would be the studio to make maybe the biggest game ever made in this genre. So narratively, what is going on here is this game takes place in the Forgotten Realms, which is part of the D&D universe. And you start off as, you know, you create this character that has been kidnapped by Mind Flayers, which are these sci-fi, Thulu-esque monsters that have all this crazy tech and they fly around in what look like spaceships. And they historically have done this thing where they put a tadpole-looking creature inside someone's head and then that tadpole sort of corrupts the person to turn into one of the Mind Flayers. Your character gets one of those tadpoles put inside their head at the very beginning of the game. But right after this happens, the ship you've been kidnapped and held on goes under attack. So you're left to fight your way out of this Mind Flayer ship and figure out where you are, how you got there, and what's going on, and specifically, why you're not turning into a Mind Flayer like you should be. That sounds like a lot, but... I think that when you think about how huge this game is, that main narrative hook isn't as important as it is in most games. That's just sort of where you get your footing. But where this game goes after that is completely up to the player. There are basically no limits. It's pretty crazy how wide open this game feels from the very beginning. The only thing that really feels like it stops you in any direction is just running into an enemy that you are not prepared to fight yet, which right. I think I've spoken on it a few times that I vastly prefer that over, you know, the Bethesda method of just making everything always the same level as your character. Yeah. In the Bethesda RPGs, I feel like you always have an even level of difficulty no matter where you go. But when you're playing something like this, and with this kind of leveling system, sometimes you're able to just completely destroy enemies, and then other times, like, you're going to have a real fight. And it's kind of right. all dependent on where you put your stats and how you're building your character. Yeah. So I think before we get too, too far into Baldur's Gate, I guess we should stop and talk about sort of the genre as a whole and our experiences with D&D, since this game is so heavily influenced by D&D. But I'll start by just saying, I haven't played many CRPGs. I think the one I've played the most of is probably Divinity Original Sin 1, and I still only played several hours. So I am, I am certainly a newbie in just about every way. But that being said, I have played a lot of D&D. So this game still kind of fit like a glove right from the get-go. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason it's so approachable. Over the past few years, D&D has gotten bigger and bigger to the point where mm. I feel like if you were to grab a random person off the street, they at least know the general rules. And this game, from my experience, it's the closest approximation of D&D 5e in a video game, period. Sure. And I mean, it, it takes it to a level that I would have never expected. And I think one of my favorite things about this game is the fact that it is so accurate to the D&D experience, but it also does such a good job of gently nudging you towards doing it well. Mm -hmm. Because I think when you're just at the table playing with friends, you don't necessarily always remember sort of what's at your disposal. I mean, I would say... Any encounter we get into when we're playing with our D&D group, there are times where we could have ended every fight much easier if we just forgot about certain spells or abilities or passive things we weren't keeping up with, like advantage because of this, or this target has disadvantage because of this. Like This game juggles all of that stuff in such a smart way and in a way where it's always very clear what you can do and then, by extension, what you should do. And I really, really love that because one of the biggest complaints I had playing Divinity Original Sin 1 was that one, it's a very hard system to learn in the first place. And two, even once you know it all, a lot of the information just isn't clear at a glance. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes really hard to know what you can and can't do any given turn. Whereas this game, it lays it all out for you as clearly as possible with, I mean, a cumbersome UI, but honestly, I will give it a pass on that because of how much information it's trying to give you. Yeah, 
I can definitely agree with that. And I, I think that Divinity, one of its biggest issues is the onboarding. At least I've also only really played Divinity Original Sin 1. I haven't played two or any of the other games in the series, but I, I feel like it's really hard to get going in that game because there's a tutorial at the very beginning that I think is way too easy. And then as soon as you're done with that tutorial, it feels like you just get thrown to the wolves. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Baldur's Gate 3 does a better job at ramping up the difficulty slowly. So it doesn't feel like you're just kind of thrown out. <laughs> in the same way that Divinity Original Sin 1 felt. Right. I'm pretty sure that's something they fixed by Divinity Original Sin 2. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a universally beloved game. I yeah. mean, it's before this game, I would say it was without a doubt, like, the most critically acclaimed game in the genre. But this game is still head and shoulders above it. I mean, this game is, like, top 10 highest rated games of all time on Metacritic yeah. now. And it's it, this game is astronomical in so many ways i think in terms of my experience with crpgs i've kind of dipped my toes into them a lot but i've never really felt gripped by one until playing baldur's gate 3 because i've tried baldur's gate 1 i've tried the fallout games um you know the first two which were actually like turn-based tactical rpgs and then I, i've tried things like i mean i guess disco elysium comes to mind and that's a crpg that i absolutely adore i think that this game has a lot in common with disco elysium in just how many options it gives you to solve any individual problem that you run into and that's one of its yeah. biggest strengths it's kind of interesting if you look at the Baldur's Gate series, though, because all of the games in the series pretty much came out between 1998 and 2004. Yeah, it's been a while. But you can tell that they've had Baldur's Gate 3 in mind for at least the past decade, considering they remade Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 back in like the very beginning of the 2010s. Yeah. And then they... Into like 2016, for some reason, they dropped an expansion for Baldur's Gate 1 that like linked its story <laughs> to Baldur's Gate 2, which is just a wild thing to do. Yeah, I mean, you can tell that, well, one, we know this game has been in production for over six years, and we know that it's been a very, very big team working on it for its entirety. Yeah. So you can tell that this is a game that has had a lot going into it from well before the point that most games have that kind of support. And... It's also really exciting to see a game made in 2023 where it's made by people that clearly love the source material, clearly they know how to make games well, and that are also incredibly confident that they've made a very, very good game. You know, like these people know that they did it right. <laughs> so. I'm not saying that they developed the Divinity Original Sin games, you know, to get a D&D &D game, but I can only imagine what the people at, I, I guess it's Hasbro or Wizards of the Coast, you know, whoever owns D&D &D these days. Yeah. I can only imagine like the look on their faces when they saw Larian's last couple projects come out and they were just like, we need to get these guys on one of our games. Yeah, I guess let's finally start talking about what actually makes up the Baldur's Gate experience and why it's so special. So the combat is definitely going to be the big thing for a lot of people. I think that that's the one barrier of entry here because I think the combat's exceptional and I think that it blended the D&D style incredibly well, but I also got to admit it's it's still complicated. Like it's it's something that if I recommended it to a friend, I would definitely couch it by being like, maybe watch some videos. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe check out read an article or two about how to do X, Y, and Z. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely say we're at a big advantage having played D&D &D for a couple years at this point. Right. If you were going to hand it to a novice, then the combat can definitely seem dense. Oh, yeah, for sure. Overly complicated, very difficult. We were talking to Jackson a few days ago because, you know, he wasn't able to be on this episode, but he did play at least a few hours of this game before he found out he wouldn't be able to make it today. But he was having a lot of issues just in terms of like trying to figure out where to go and how to play his class and running into a combat and everywhere you run into, it feels kind of overwhelming and super difficult. Doesn't necessarily help that his character had pretty low health. Yeah. I mean, just looking at it from the outside, just seeing how many things any given character can do any turn 
and knowing you're controlling four characters that can all do at least that many things, Mm -hmm. it's definitely overwhelming if you don't understand the fundamentals right out of the gate. But, I mean, it always comes down to the same principles that make up D&D, which is that your turn for each character is broken into four things. You can take an action, a bonus action, a movement, and free action, which is just anything that doesn't require using one of the other three. And if you understand how those things work and you understand what any given thing you try to do is within those categories, it makes a lot more sense. But if you've never played a game comparable to that, it can be really confusing because, well, why can I cast this healing spell now, but this other one, I can't cast it when I've done this other thing. Like, you know, it's stuff that isn't abundantly clear on the surface, but once you understand it and you know how to make the most of everything you can do in any given turn, you can do some insanely cool stuff and stuff you could never do in another game. Yeah, absolutely. Even in similar games, it feels like Baldur's Gate lets you do all the same things that those games let you do, but it also has a much better UI for making it clear like what you can do and how you can do it and how long it's going to take you to do it. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's always really clear if you select a move and you highlight an enemy, it tells you, it, it makes it really clear what your likelihood of hitting is, what the damage range on it is. It kind of subtly guides you towards using things that are going to be more likely to hit and are more effective. It makes it really clear whenever there are status effects or conditions that are going to affect what you're about to do. It's just, it does such a good job with so much information. So far, one of my favorite things I've done in the game in terms of combat was I was having a horrible time with this one particular fight. And it was all stemming from the fact that it was a large group of enemies, which isn't normally a big deal because I have some AoE spells and I have some pretty tanky guys to get in the middle of the fight. But there was one particular enemy in the fight that was just a lot more powerful than the others. So I needed to come up with a way to like get rid of that one character before I really got too invested in everybody else. So what I eventually figured out was uh, there was a peak that was relatively close to where that particular enemy spawned, but wasn't super close to any of the others. So what finally ended up working for me is I had a wizard use Misty Step, which is like a teleportation, to come to the top of the hill. I had that guy come at me up the hill because I knew he only had melee weapons. I had him disappear off the hill again, back down. And then I had my barbarian run up behind him on this peak and push him off. (laughs) Like, (laughs) those aren't things you could traditionally do in another RPG. And I really appreciate that. And it it went even further than that because pushing him off didn't quite kill him. But because he he fell really far and was now prone, everybody had advantage on him, which meant it was really easy to hit him to finish him off. It lets you do things like that. And it makes abilities that sound really stupid, like there's a spell called Grease, which doesn't sound useful in the slightest because it literally just throws Grease on the ground. But if you do that with the right combination of things, you can get a whole group of enemies slipping and falling. Then you can just like bombard them with fire to cause explosions that take out big groups of enemies and deal tons of damage over time. And it's just, you can put together such fun combinations in ways that I just, I can't imagine another game letting you do just because they don't give you the diverse options that this game does. Absolutely. And I think Larian was really smart about realizing like when it's best to kind of follow the rules that have been set up for them already by D and D fifth edition. And when it's a good idea to make some changes to make the experience better for a player, you know, like one really notable one is that you can, throw healing potions onto your allies to heal them instantly, including like downed allies. You can use a healing potion as your bonus action, which is not something you can do in regular D&D. And it's dumb. It feels like on the one hand, there are still some things that are missing from D&D that I would probably like to see added to this game in the future with, you know, if they ever Mm -hmm. do an expansion for it. But everything that is there is so good and so smartly implemented. It feels like combat is a blast once you can really get into it. Yeah. And there was one thing I was like really nervous about with this game, knowing it was a D&D adaptation. So in D&D, there's a lot of spells that are boring conceptually, but can be really fun if you add some flavor. 
like charm person, disguise self, invisibility, like anything you could use to like get into a position you shouldn't be in. Those are things that I think are really fun in D&D, but are hard to adapt mechanically to a video game because you can't have these wild conversations where you can try to persuade them to do things that make no sense. But I also think this game has such a sense of fun with the systems that you still get plenty of opportunities to do crazy stuff with those spells and with those abilities that I would have never expected. Yeah. For example, a big part of the game is this parasite you have in your head should be turning into a mind flayer, but instead is giving you these crazy psychic powers. And because of this, there are certain groups of enemies that you can just make do things for you without question. Like, you have to roll, but it'll just be like roll a two on a charisma check or whatever. (laughs) And it lets you, like, do some pretty fun stuff that I wouldn't have expected from the general tone of the game otherwise. Like, for example, there is a point when you encounter some goblins that have attached a gnome to one of the propeller blades of a windmill, and they're spinning him around and around and around. And you can just straight up be like, I want to have some fun with this, and the goblins will just let you do it. And then, if you do what I did, you're not careful enough when you go around to the back of the controls on the windmill, and you accidentally speed it up significantly and send that gnome flying thousands of feet into the air. It's just, it's fun, and it knows the D&D world, and it knows D&D players in, in a way I would have never expected. I also like how it gives you different options based on how you built your character. Right. I played as a warlock, so occasionally when I was having a discussion with somebody, I could seek assistance from my warlock patron, or maybe I could resist an effect that otherwise would have taken a really high roll to do, or any variety of things. And I think the cleric has really similar stuff going on with like divine intervention. And I just think it's kind of nice that there are actual tangible effects on the story that the way you build your character can have. Anytime that something came up where I was like, well, my character's a warlock. Like, I signed a pact with a demon that should be protecting me. Anytime that I felt like that demon should be protecting me, they showed up, (laughs) you know? Maybe not in person, but they at least showed up to assist me in some way, like in dialogue or giving me knowledge or something like that. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool stuff that changes based on the class you're playing as. Like, for example, I started as a paladin, which is a class that I've been wanting to play in an actual D&D game for a while. So I I decided to go that route. And there were a lot of really interesting things that would come up where I'd be talking to someone and it would be like, okay, here are the five things you can say. This one uses deception, this one uses charisma, this one uses intimidation, and this one uses the fact that you are a paladin. And almost all of those options were something like really uniquely suited to not only the fact that I was a paladin, but the specific path I was on and the specific god in question. And the fact that they wrote out effectively 14 different ways that any given conversation could go based on your class is absolutely insane to think about. I, like I said, I started over about 10 hours in and I decided the second time I wanted to go the origin character route where, which is another really smart thing that we'll, we'll circle back on. But, you know, then I was playing as a warlock for most of the conversations and the stuff I could say and my likelihood of succeeding on certain checks was completely different because of it. So I had, I encountered the same NPC said a lot of the same things, but it still ended up being something completely different because of my character's background. And that's even two classes that are based on charisma, isn't it? No. It could be charisma, but I know I was much worse at charisma checks when I was playing as a paladin. Yeah, that makes sense. I think you have options with paladins where like, you could build a strength one or a dexterity one or a charisma one. Yeah, mine was definitely a strength-based. Paladins are all about physical damage and being tanky and smiting people that's their main that's their big draw yeah (laughs) that's why i wanted to be a paladin so i could smite some people (laughs) yeah it's 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 so cool just how different everything can be based on how you're playing and the choices that you make it is kind of interesting another thing i really liked is uh you know 
there's a point early on where you can go to a goblin camp. And as you get to the gate of the goblin camp, there's a goblin guarding it. And next to him are some kind of war beasts. I don't remember exactly what kind of animal they are. The guy doesn't want to let you in, but he says, if you make a fool of yourself and smear poop from the monster all over your face, that he'll let you in and, you know, everything will be fine. And if you take that option, like everyone in the goblin camp treats you entirely differently because you're walking around with poop on your face like an idiot. That's wild. I never had that come up. I visited that camp in two different saves and that was never even an option. That's wild. It's also really fun to talk about this game with other people that are playing it because your experiences can be completely different. For example, there are five companions you can encounter. Really, if you were trying, you can't encounter all of them in the first 30 minutes. But it's also possible to just completely miss one or two of them for long stretches of time. Yeah. Like the game actually builds in ways to encounter them in other maps later because they know the likelihood of just never just happening to never pass by where they were before is so high. Yeah, it was funny because I missed one of the major companions, Lizelle or Lazel, whatever it is. And the next time that I ran into her, she was surrounded by a bunch of enemies that were way too strong for me to fight. Mm. Like I stumbled into her when I was level four and just they would take out my entire party except for my character in a single turn. So I had to not only I missed her at the very beginning, so I didn't have her for the first, you know, four or five levels. And then when I did finally run into her, I was way under leveled to actually add her to my party. So I just ended up going somewhere else and then came back when I was like level seven or something. Mm. She is in my party now. She's very good. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that the barbarian would deal a lot more damage than her. So I was like, well, there's probably no reason to have her in the party. But I, I think that at least the way I've built them, Lizelle is way stronger than the Barbarian. So let's talk a little bit about those companions, because I think that they're a lot of fun, both mechanically and narratively. I would say maybe better than any other game I've ever played. This is like the best cast of main characters you can play as in a game. Yeah. I, I think that all of them are so fun and so original and have such interesting stories of their own. And they're also different. Like, you can re-roll them to be other classes and stuff, but all of them have something that's really special about them that persists even if you change how they play. Mm -hmm. There are five companions that are known as the origin companions. So these are the characters that join your team in the first act or can join your team in the first act. Um, you actually have an option to play as one of these characters instead of creating your own if you choose. And that's what I did the second time through when I started over. These characters have... You know, regular abilities linked to what class they are, but they also have other things. And I don't want to spoil what all of those are, but they have like unique elements that affect how they are both in and out of combat, which are really, really cool. And I often found myself more interested in these companion quests than I did the main story. Like even knowing there was effectively a ticking time bomb implanted in my character's brain, I still wanted to know more about Shadow Heart's whole order <laughs> than I did about getting that bomb out. Yeah, felt the exact same way. I would say the cast of characters in this game is probably on par with like Mass Effect 2. Just how much I like all of them. And they're all really powerful in really unique ways. Like you have a rogue, one of the first characters that can join you, that if you're particular about where you hide and your positioning and getting the high ground and stuff, can just absolutely destroy enemies before they can even move. And, you know, you have a cleric who is both incredibly hard to hit in a fight, but also can just constantly be healing everyone and keeping everybody on their feet. And, you know, you, you talked about a barbarian that she might be the weakest of the companions, but is also just such a cool character and has such a unique thing going on outside of combat that I still felt I needed to be constantly interacting with her. So. Yeah, I also really liked her personality. I thought that yeah. she was kind of the most fun of them because everyone else that you can have in your party is pretty serious. Like yeah. all the time they're like, we need to get this whole ticking time bomb in our heads taken care of immediately, or we're all going to die. And then you have the barbarian companion who's just like, I'm having a good time. <laughs> yeah. Boy, howdy. I sure love killing things. Yeah. 
it's just everything about these characters and this world that they're in is done with such care and such uh, originality. And I don't know how anyone could interact with these characters within this game and have anything negative to say. Like, even if you dislike them, because I do strongly dislike one of the companions, but I still think like they're incredibly interesting and I still want to know how things unfold with them. I've been really, really impressed. And I mean, I know that there are even more companions down the road and you can loop in characters outside of that group that you can also have join your team, you know, just if you go the right directions in the game. I don't know. It just, it feels like there really isn't a limit to what you can do with this game. If you're smart about it and patient with the systems and you get to know the characters, like I feel like there's just, there's something here that's going to satisfy anything you're looking for in a game. It's just, again, the combat is a bit complicated and I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame people for bouncing off of the rest of the game based on the combat, which is a real bummer, but I, I do get it. You know, another thing I really like is just how many options it gives you to solve almost any quest in the game. For sure. At some point in almost every single quest, you get to a point where it's just like, okay, do this or do this or do this. And you have any variety of ways that you can solve it, including just ignoring it and letting it solve itself. Yeah. There's a plot line pretty early on where you need to essentially kind of work out some kind of agreement between some druids and some tieflings that are all sharing a, a single grove as a safe place. The druids really want the tieflings gone. The tieflings want to leave, but there are some goblins stopping them. And the goblins are goblins. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you can choose any of those three groups to you know team up with I, I don't know that you can necessarily combine the goblins and the tieflings since they're kind of very much working against each other but if you want to instead of recruiting one of the major companions that you get that just kind of hangs out in your camp and he follows you around but he becomes like a playable character in a later act instead of getting him you can go help the goblins and get a completely different companion that'll follow you around it's crazy just knowing that there are so many, I guess you could call them contingencies in this game. Like, not only are there a thousand ways to solve every quest, but everything after that point can be completely different because of the choices that you make. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure the faction that you choose to help in the beginning straight up determines NPCs that'll be with you until Act 3. Right. And I mean, part of the reason that I decided to start over was because the decisions I made regarding that, you know, druid tiefling dispute led to not being able to recruit one of the companions and one of the companions I'd already recruited deciding to leave. And I didn't want to keep playing without them. I think that this game not only gives you these options and makes them meaningful, but they also give you tangible effects, which I think a lot of games shy away from i would say mass effects about the only other game that i think gives you this level of choice and then makes you deal with the consequences in the way they do i would say this goes a few steps further than mass effect just because you know mass effect gives you multiple options a lot but it's usually a binary choice you know sure you can sure. help or hurt these people but Baldur's right. gate and like i said like you can help them or you can help them a little and help another faction a lot or you can kill everyone you can team up with the other side. You know, you can be a double agent, I guess, if you want. A million yeah. ways to solve every single issue. And it's, it's insane how much they were able to work into it. Because I, I feel like these RPGs can get really complex, even, you know, in the best case scenario. And just the amount of work that you can clearly see Larian took on to make sure that this world felt tangible. Every action that you make has some kind of reaction in the world. And if you decide not to make an action, that's going to come back and bite you in the butt too. I feel like probably somewhere on one of Larian's computer, there's like a document that is all of the text for this game, specifically in like a, they a lot of games will use those like webs of dialogue where you can say X, Y, and Z, and these are the three outcomes of that. I feel like if you found the one for this game, wherever it is, it's probably the most confusing mess <laughs> because every conversation you're going to have, okay, well, these are the three lines of dialogue the character says, and then these are the five things you can say to that. And then off of each of those five things, it's like, okay, well, these are the three things you can say after that. And then these are like, 
I mean, there are literally conversations with NPCs that don't matter in the slightest where there's like 10 different text options across like three different times where you're given a chance to speak. And it's just crazy to think that there were, I mean, I would hope dozens of writers that were making this game into what it is. It's wild to think that they could make a game this big with this many options, but still have this clear of an idea of its tone and its style and its pacing. It's interesting because I, I followed Joshua Sawyer pretty closely on social media just because he shares some really interesting insight into like what's going on at Obsidian, what they're working on, what they have worked on, and the different tools that they use. And he shared some of the, I guess, like decision trees and dialogue trees and stuff like that from when he was working on Pentiment. And some of those are absolutely insane. I don't necessarily know that I would say Baldur's Gate 3 is as complex as Pentiment, but it's comparable in a way that it's absolutely insane that Baldur's Gate 3 is probably, you know, five to six times as large (laughs) as Pentiment. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, I couldn't imagine keeping up with that level of complexity for that long and then having those threads tie off so far down the line. This game is just... I'm not going to say it's like the most fun game I've played this year or it's the one that I'm the most like, uh, I don't know how to say it other than like, this is the game I'm the most impressed by that I've played in a very long time. I just feel like everything they did is on such a scale, but with such consistent quality that it's hard to even like put this game in the same category as a lot of other games we've played. Like there are games that baffle me how they are written as well as they are like uh, the God of like the new God of war games. Like the, the writing in those games is incredible, but to think that this game hits that level of quality, but also has a thousand times as much dialogue in it is just like, it's mind blowing that this game is what it is. Having that level of quality with branching storylines is the big thing. Yeah. Because I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to downplay like the work that went into something like God of War. Oh, for sure. There is a difference between like knowing your starting and ending point and being able to plot out every single point in between versus allowing players to actually come in and kind of decide on their own points. And a player could make decisions that are just absolutely baffling. You know, like they might help one faction all the way to the end and then decide to kill them all or betray them or something. And yeah. just knowing that like someone's taken the time to put the thought in to be like, okay, well we should handle that outcome. You know, you don't want it to be an unsatisfying ending after all the time that people put into it. Right. I, I just think there is probably a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences between writing a linear story like God of War and writing something like, Baldur's Gate. For sure. And I think the biggest difference is just going to be quantity. You know, you're going to have more writers working on stuff for a game like this, but those writers are going to have to be completely in sync on a lot of different things. That's what's so hard for me to get my head wrapped around. Like, even in really linear games without a lot of dialogue, sometimes there will still be moments where something is said that's just really weird and cringy and out of place. And even as much as I've played of this game and the massive tonal shifts that I've seen from character to character, everything just fits. It, it's all so perfectly put together. There have been no moments where anyone has said something that I thought was just weird or out of character or didn't fit the style of the game. Like, it's all just, like, completely in sync. I think that Baldur's Gate, for me at least, it, it's one of those games that I think I'm going to be talking about for a long time. Yeah, it's only been out a short amount of time and I haven't beaten it. So I don't know, maybe maybe the ending could really disappoint me. But (laughs) for me at this point, it's on that level with games like Fallout New Vegas, Mass Effect 2, uh, Disco Elysium of just these games that are some of my favorites of all time with unparalleled levels of player freedom and agency. Mass Effect 2 kind of sticks out in that list, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> just crazy. And I think that, you know, even when I finish this playthrough, it's going to be a game that I come back to every couple years where I'm like, okay, well, what if my character was this instead? What if my character was just a huge jerk to everyone? Or what if my character was 
goblin or something that everyone hates, you know? Yeah. I don't know that you can be a goblin, but you can be a Githyanki, no. and I think everyone hates them in the drow. <laughs> yeah. Drow, yeah. My first character was a drow, and people, they don't like drow. <laughs> yeah, it's... I just, I have a hard time imagining me going more than several months without at least turning this game on for a little while. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if I'm not going to play it in its entirety very often, I just, I have a hard time seeing myself getting out of this game enough that I don't at least check back in sometimes. And I mean, that's still with 60 plus hours left in my first playthrough. So I guess it could potentially change. And I have heard the third act isn't as good as the first two but i've also heard that it's it's contingent on your actions in a way that you just don't see in a lot of games so people don't always know what to make of that <laughs> yeah i feel like generally in these kinds of games your best story experience is going to be being the good guy that does the right thing as much as possible so if you do decide to side with the goblins and kill all the tieflings or something there's probably going to be something missing where those tieflings are not there but it doesn't make sense for the goblins to be there either. So you can kind of forgive it in some ways because some point you do have to draw the line, right? Right. I kind of want to keep going, but I also kind of feel like I don't want to get too granular and I want to leave most of this game a surprise. You want to give us a, a quick summary then? It was okay, right? <laughs> I, I think Baldur's Gate is one of those once in a blue moon games. Yeah. Like I just said, like I, I would compare it to Fallout New Vegas, Mass Effect to Disco Elysium of these games that just come together perfectly in a way that you very rarely see in this industry. Yeah, for sure. It's a game that I would honestly say I would recommend to everyone, probably incessantly, like Morrowind, where it's yeah. like, I know that no one I recommend Morrowind to is going to play it or at least not the majority of them, because they're going to see it, and they're going to be like, this game is 20 years old, and it plays like garbage, but there's just like that layer of gold underneath. And I think a lot of people are going to see this game and be like, oh, it's turn-based, and kind of, you know, turn their heads, sneer at it a little bit. Yeah, I think that there is a group of people that will bounce off of this game because of the difficulty with the combat. And I do think that they could have done a little more to onboard people I, I still think it's a, it's leagues above most crpgs from my experience but i do think it could have used a little bit more tutorializing it could have done a little bit more to explain how to effectively play certain classes things like that mm -hmm. but that being said if you can get over that hump at the beginning i don't think there's much to criticize here i think it looks great it plays great it's beautifully written there's so much content there's so much to see and do there's a million ways you can handle every situation like i don't really know what else to ask for in a game if i'm being honest obviously it's not going to scratch every itch just because sometimes you want a really fast and exciting game which is what i'm going to talk about on pulling the plug as a spoiler <laughs> but like i think that this game perfectly fills exactly what i want from that more methodical, more particular, more intricate side of the gaming world. Like, I don't think there's any game that does what this game does anywhere near as well as it does. I completely agree with that. And I, I think the biggest thing has got to be having that believable world. And so few games manage to do that. For sure. It, it both feels larger than life, but also incredibly approachable and meaningful. And I think that that's, that's something that's really unique to D&D &D as an experience is that D&D, &D, there's no limits. And this game, of course, it's a video game, so there has to be some limits. But it gets pretty dang close <laughs> to the D&D &D experience. I've done weirder things in this game than I feel like I have in some D&D &D campaigns. And that's really saying something. <laughs> I think that I would probably recommend that people give D&D &D a try before playing Baldur's Gate 3. Yeah. I, I do feel like you're right. It doesn't necessarily tutorialize a lot of things as well as it could. And I think that reading the D&D &D books and just, you know, maybe spending a session or two playing it at the very least is kind of going to be the best onboarding you're going to get. Right. 
you know, it's a lot to ask of like, oh, we'll just go join a D&D group with a good <laughs> DM. But at the same time, I think that it really enriches the experience of this game because you'll have sort of an innate understanding of what you can do. And there's still going to be some learning curves because there are some things that are different from D&D. I would say a lot of a lot of the changes are actually better than D&D, if anything. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I mean, there are some things you're going to have to learn and there are some UI stuff that you'll have to give some time to. But, you know, if you've played D&D, you're familiar with how the mechanics work. You're sort of familiar with the world. You know, preferably you've played an actual D&D module. Like there's a lot that's going to feel familiar in this game that will more than carry you through the difficult learning process. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. There's actually a D&D module that leads directly into this game. Huh, that's interesting. It's called Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus. Hmm. From what I read, it takes place just a few months before the game. It takes place like all in Baldur's Gate, and then you go into Avernus, presumably. <laughs> sure, <laughs> yeah, huh. But, you know, if you're if you're looking for a good starter to get you into D&D before you play Baldur's Gate 3, then that's probably your best one. Yeah. It could be terribly balanced. <laughs> but it came out in 2019. So I think around the same time that the game went into early access. Yeah. Oh, no, a year a year before it went into early access. That was in right. 2020. I thought it was 2019. That's also something I wanted to talk about but kind of forgot about. This game is really a an early access success story. I feel like a lot of games, uh, specifically indie games, have really relied on early access in the last couple of years. And that's largely good. Like, I think that there being a way to play a game as it's being developed and sort of support the creators in a very direct way and to sort of get a handle on things, I think that's really cool. It is really weird when a AAA studio does it, though. Or not, I don't know if Larian is quote-unquote AAA. They're huge, obviously, but they're, like, in a different space. But I think if there were more games that could go in with such a clear vision of what they want the game to be beforehand, I think early access could actually be a really, really cool asset in gaming in the future. But I, I do feel like with a lot of what we've seen outside of the indie space, early access is kind of a crutch yeah. <laughs> in some contexts. It's like, we don't quite know what we want to do with this game, so we're just going to throw it out there and see what sticks. I mean, I think the biggest thing that was working in Larian's favor in this case was the fact that they've developed four or five games in the same kind of space. Right. And then they got a giant license, like the D&D license, and they decided, like, okay, well, we're going to take our time on this, but also let's try to get opinions from people outside of our company, you know? Like, yeah. one of Larian's biggest strengths with the early access period was just knowing what advice to take from players and what advice to just throw away and ignore. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a very rare thing to see. Because, you know, we've talked about how huge this game is, but I don't think it necessarily feels bloated at any point. No, definitely not. It Every single detail is very intentional. And while the map is huge... You can never walk for more than like 30 seconds without encountering an NPC or an enemy or something. It's wild. And I don't mean to like criticize early access conceptually. Like I really don't want to sound like I'm saying it's inherently bad or it's even like mostly bad. Because some of my favorite games did the early access route. You know, the two that first come to mind are Hades and Gunfire Reborn, which are both games I've put think well over 200 hours into each. And I played both of them from their earliest iterations and was still having a ton of fun with them back then and then saw their final products evolve into something exceptional. So, you know, I think it can definitely be done well. And from what I understand, even the people that played this game in its earliest form, which I think when it first released, it was only the starting map. Yeah, it was only act one. Yeah, like, and that was, people were still like, okay, this is something special. <laughs> yeah, I, for the most part, ignored them. I was like, I'm not going to play an early access CRPG. I don't play regular ones. <laughs> right, right. But I, I think that what they did manage to do was pull in like the hardcore people and a lot of just curious people in general. Yeah. And they were like, okay, you're essentially play testing this game for us. So if there's something like you really like in D&D &D that we're missing or something that's implemented 
a different way that you don't like that kind of ruins the flow of combat. I think that's more the kind of stuff that they listen to. They weren't letting their players be backseat writers or anything like that. They were just kind of seeing what the general community thought and trying to work as much of that into the feel of the game as possible. And that's why it was so successful. Because like we've seen so many games. And like I'm also not saying that early access is inherently bad. I think, you know, Hades is a great example of something that worked out really well. But Sometimes you see games that crash and burn because they're like, okay, well, the fans are saying that they don't like this, but this is what the whole game is built on. So now I got to rebuild everything. (laughs) Yeah. And Larian was smart enough never to do that, at least from what I've seen. Yeah. Like I said earlier in the episode, they were confident that they had something special here and they knew exactly what to prioritize. Well, I think that's already a lot of Baldur's Gate talk and spoilers but i suspect we'll talk about this game again (laughs) come our game of the year episode (laughs) so don't don't feel like we're leaving you high and dry yeah think of this as the early access for our game of the year episode (laughs) yeah but i think that means it's time to pull the plug flush 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 jason what is something else that you've been into my whole life there's been this show on TV that I've tried to ignore. I've seen it a few times uh, and I was just like, no, this really isn't for me. But then in, I believe, 2019, this video game called Death Stranding came out. And what it did was ingratiate Norman Reedus in my mind in a way that I don't necessarily think any actor has ever been just ingrained in there to the point where... I've never seen anything else with Norman Reedus in it, but I consider myself Norman Reedus's strongest soldier. <laughs> because I just love him that much in Death Stranding. So I decided that I would finally sit down and watch, I guess, his most famous other work, The Walking Dead. And let me tell you, it's pretty good. I see what the hype was about. I had seen the first two or three episodes before when I was younger. I don't think Norman Reedus is even in the first two or three episodes, so I never saw him. I remember watching it on Netflix not long after like season two or three came out. This was still when I was well into my Supernatural and Doctor Who phase. (laughs) But every time I tried to watch it, I would just kind of get tired of it. I thought zombies were pretty played out. And to be fair, back then they really were. There were zombies in just about every piece of media you could imagine. So The Walking Dead, like, I saw it, and I was just like, eh. I mean, I think watching Invincible also kind of led me back to The Walking Dead, just because it's written by the same guy, or the the mm-hmm. comic series it's based on. They're both right. written by Robert Kirkman, and I really like Invincible. At least, you know, I haven't read the comic, but I really like season one on Amazon. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, Walking Dead season one is pretty dang good. I really like the different characters that they introduce and like the real focus on the relationship between those characters. I think it's really good at like nailing those emotional moments, sometimes better than others, I guess. Uh, (laughs) There are definitely some, shall we say, sour apples (laughs) mixed in, but sure. I think that generally like every episode, at least in the first season, brings something pretty interesting and unique to the table that I think that I just completely glazed over because I was like, yeah, it's a zombie show. I've only finished the first season, so there's not really, like, too, too much more I can get into, but pretty good. I I know you've watched it at least a little bit. I've watched the first episode, like, three times and not went past that point ever. I think I, like, started the the second episode once, and (laughs) that's the farthest I've ever gone, which I think the the show actually starts really strong. I think the first episode is really good and sets a very unique tone and style. It's just, it takes a lot to get me to sit down and watch any show with that's as long as that one is, but something about, I think it's just the culture around the show kind of was like, "Eh, I'm not going to watch this. (laughs) It's nothing wrong with the show. It's just that the most annoying people I know were obsessed with the show. (laughs) Yeah. I can agree with that. Now might be the best time to watch it, though, considering that those people have forgotten about it because they also have incredibly short attention spans. Well, what kind of led me back to it was a few months ago, they announced a whole bunch of like new spinoffs coming out. Mm-hmm. I think there were like two or three of them, and there's already two or three different spinoffs. So I saw those announcements, and I was like, I guess I should probably actually check that out now. Right. There has to be some reason they're still making these. <laughs> 
Norman Reedus is pretty different in uh, Walking Dead than he is in Death Stranding. <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes sense. He's, he's a lot more in your face. Like I said, I, I don't have too, too much to talk about The Walking Dead other than just saying it's pretty good and I think you should watch at least the first season. If the rest of the show ends up being really bad, I'll make sure to update you. <laughs> uh, but Jordan, what have you been up to? You know, if you had told me a couple months ago that I was going to play the best Soulsborne game not made by From Software in 2023, I would have been like, yeah, I already did it. It was Wolong Fallen Dynasty. It was like the first game we reviewed this year, and it was awesome. But Wolong Fallen Dynasty does not hold a candle to Lies of P, the gothic horror take on the story of Pinocchio. Uh, this game, first off, just got to get it right out of the gate. Lies of P is fantastic. It is genuinely an exceptional game. And not even just as like a From Software imitator. Good, genuinely good, and it's completely own merits. Like, it's not just this is a good Bloodborne-inspired RPG. This is a really, really good RPG that just is very similar to Bloodborne, which also happens to be one of my favorite games. But I've spent the last two weeks playing... I go back and forth pretty 50-50 between this and Baldur's Gate because they definitely occupy the two parts of the gaming space that I want, where Baldur's Gate is very methodical and particular and makes great use of your choices. Lies of P is just brutal, but very, very fun and very, very interesting combat. This is a Soulsborne game in terms of it's these really linear very challenging recursive levels where you're trying to get from point A to point B and you're fighting enemies and you're opening shortcuts and whenever you die you have to go all the way back and you lose your XP and you have to go back and get it or you lose it forever and it has a lot of the same ideas that make games like Elden Ring and Bloodborne and Dark Souls really compelling but what it does so well is the way that it manipulates that to be sort of just the that's sort of just the set dressing for a game that's very unique in and of itself. Because this is a story about Pinocchio, specifically about a, a world where puppets have sort of come to life, or they're at least acting more human than they were before, just out of the blue. And there's a lot of themes, I guess, that, that pull directly from the Pinocchio story. But this is more gothic horror than it is Pinocchio. <laughs> I think it's good for that because I think the Pinocchio ties are actually the weakest part of this game. But this is a game where you go out and you fight these creepy and complicated puppet monster creatures and you go in and you craft these giant weapons and the game has a really interesting system where you can take parts of one weapon and attach them to a different one so you can create you know, different combinations where it'll be like the damage of this one sword blade, but it's the swinging style of this axe you use and you broke apart. And, you know, the, the damage scaling is different based on what you build. And there's a really interesting mechanic where you can perfect block every move in this game. Very, very difficult. Even more precise timing than Sekiro. But if you manage to get it down, you can actually break enemies' weapons so if you perfect guard enough attacks and you parry things constantly, you can actually destroy their weapons, and then that enemy will either just have way worse range or they'll just resort to trying to punch and kick you instead. <laughs> um, and I have not found many games that have a mechanic as satisfying as breaking a boss's weapon in Lies of P. You never feel cooler than when you break a weapon of a boss that's just beaten you ten times in a row, and then you know that you're just going to be able to just butcher them after that point it definitely sounds like a lot of fun it's really weird though with the the soulsborne community because i've seen a lot of people say things along the lines of it's like bloodborne but worse and they mean that as a compliment <laughs> <laughs> i definitely get what they're saying <laughs> i mean so bloodborne is definitely the game that is this game is most inspired by just in terms of stylistically and it does have the sort of Soulsborne combat. So like the connections are clear, 
But this game's actually a lot faster paced and a lot more aggressive than almost anything that From Software has made. Um, it's probably more in line with Sekiro in that regard. But I just feel like this game was made with so much love for the From Software formula that I am more than willing to forgive some of the weirdness that comes out of the Pinocchio side of the game. <laughs> also, it's sort of just deranged that this game even tries to say it's like a Pinocchio-inspired story because, one, the puppets are not puppets. They're robots. The definition of puppet doesn't change just because they're made of wood. Like, a robot is still a robot, even if the exterior looks like a puppet. And two... You could just change the names of Geppetto and Jiminy, and this game would have basically zero connection to Pinocchio. Because even your character is never explicitly called Pinocchio. It's just that you are a puppet robot that wants to be a real boy. <laughs> I think the idea of a robot wanting to be human isn't that intrinsic of the Pinocchio narrative. I don't, I don't know. But that being said, that stuff really is just... You know, it's vague plot points more than it's anything directly related to what's happening in the game. This game is more pointed in, than from software games. The story is more in your face. It's more direct. There are characters that will just outright explain what's happening. <laughs> uh, the plot isn't buried in some random like piece of paper you picked up at a spot that you could have easily missed 10 hours ago. There's characters that just explain what's happening and why it matters. Um, but... You know, I just, I just think it's such a fun game. The fights are really cool. The bosses are really fun. The weapon building mechanic is really, really unique. I just, I think that there are a lot of games that try to do what From Software does, but none of them ever get it right because one, they don't, they don't have the resources to be From Software. And two, they kind of miss what makes From Software special. Because from software games are hard. There's no question about that. Yeah. People that try to say they're not are just trying to brag. But it's not that they're difficult that makes from software games good. It's their atmosphere. It's their tone. It's their style of storytelling. It's the way that you can be whatever you want to be, but you still have to fit it into this world. Like Elden Ring isn't appealing because it's hard. Elden Ring is appealing because it's an incredible RPG that just happens to be hard. And Liza P is the same way. It's not good because it's hard. It's a very good game that just also happens to be very hard. I just, I wish more games would accept the From Software style and not just be like, oh yeah, this is the most difficult one yet. <laughs> I mean, Wo Long did that. That was why I liked Wo Long so much because mm -hmm. Wo Long wasn't a difficult game. It had a brutally difficult tutorial for some reason. But otherwise, it was not that difficult. But it still was really, really fun because it took what was good about From Software games and didn't just be like, how do we make this as hard as possible? Everyone wants to be From Software, but no one wants to put out some of the worst games you've ever heard of between the years of 1999 <laughs> and 2009. Yeah. If you want to be From Software, Dark Souls and beyond, you got to be From Software pre-Armored Core. <laughs> No. You gotta be from software making Spriggan Lunarverse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Liza P is gonna be a hard sell for a lot of people because it is very, very difficult. It might be harder than any of the From Software games, if I'm honest. But I do think if you can get past that and you're not someone that gets easily frustrated with games, I think that it's really something special. And the fact that it's on Game Pass at launch is also very, very cool because this isn't this isn't a game I would have ever really thought about otherwise. Mm -hmm. But I just saw it was on Game Pass, downloaded it, played the first hour, and was like, I'm in. <laughs> like this is all it this is all it takes. <laughs> yeah. It's there's a lot to it too. I'm I'm about I just finished it uh yesterday and I was like thirty two hours in, and there's like some pretty heavy upgrades that go into the new game plus so i'm excited to see what happens there too so good game good game very hard not for everybody but still very good game <laughs> well i think that just about does it for another episode of the totally biased media podcast if you would like to reach out to us there are a handful of ways you can do that first 
on Twitter slash X. It's at TBMcast. Second, on Instagram, it's at Totally Biased Media. And third, it's twitch.tv slash Totally Biased Media. Uh, we try to stream at least every other week, if not more. We're coming up on the end of the year of the Kong. We don't have much left. Not, not a whole lot more Kong to explore, but we've had a lot of fun with it, and we're excited to see what goes down in the future. If you have suggestions for what we do in the future, you can reach us on our socials, or you can send an email to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. We'd love suggestions for other game series or ways we could just do things a little differently. If there's better times to stream, if there's you know ways we can engage more during our streams, we'd love to hear your suggestions. We'll try to engage with you however we reasonably can. <laughs> I told you, if we want to get people to watch our streams, we need to stream at 8 a.m. on a Monday. <laughs> yeah. Twitch statistics are wild, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> That's when the ratios are best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But for the Totally Biased Media Podcast, I'm Jordan Walkup. And I'm Jason Simmons. And you just felt the bias. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Goodbye.